Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 12? Mark chapter 12. Those of you who are visiting this morning, by the way, where is Jim? Ha! <laughs> you guys have to stand up. Come on, stand up. This, come on, Ruth, stand up. Turn around and face everybody. These, these are my two best friends the whole time I was in the PCUSA for almost a decade. This is Jim DeCamp and his wife, I'm going to say Ruth, right? Yeah. And, and Robert Woodyard, who's been here with his son, Zach. Zach, stand up. And then Brian, stand up. Come on, Brian. Come on. Don't you take orders? <laughs> now face everybody. Turn around. And, and so Robert and Jim and I worked for years with Presbyterians Pro-Life at General Assemblies. And that's Ruth, so I didn't get to know Ruth as well. But she probably got to know me as well. <laughs> she heard the stories. Uh, Jim, could you make your, your fish face for everybody, please? It's, come on. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> okay, you guys can all sit down. Okay. I, I, I said to uh, somebody this morning that Robert... And Jim and I were as I and David and Stephen are now. And uh, we went through a lot of difficult things. Um, and God has, God has blessed us in allowing us to no longer be ministers in the Presbyterian Church USA. I think uh, at least Robert and I would agree with that. Jim, you're retired, so, right? <laughs> Anyhow, and then Brian Bunn is an elder at Roberts Church, and we always see Brian, uh, he's in the pastor's college, and Reed is here, who is Robert's, I mean not Reed, Zach, who is Robert's youngest son, and Reed has been here, and many of you will get to see him this next week, and uh, so we're happy, very happy to have you here. Um, All of you visiting this this week, um, I just want to say that we're at the end of a series of sermons leading up to a commitment Sunday for a capital campaign. And a capital campaign differs in the normal tithes and offerings of a church in that we give to a capital campaign from our capital. In other words, from our permanent wealth, from inheritances, pension funds, uh, possessions. Whereas tithes and offerings we give from our normal income every week or every month, depending on how you're paid. And so every week... We, we take in tithes and offerings as a church that are given to God and they're used to pay for the lights and for the mortgage and for various other things, but about half of it goes to the salaries of the pastors and to the other people that get paid here. Um, but then once every, what, 10 years? <laughs> once every seven years? Once every three years? I don't know. But once every period of time longer, we also give from our mortgage equity, from our pension, from our capital, so that we can build the church. And we had one of these capital campaigns that ended, I want to say, seven or eight years ago, probably. Um, But we've had a lot of children, and you can probably notice that. And uh, so we are absolutely out of space in our church, not simply on Sunday, but all week, because we use it all week for the pastor's college, for Athanasius, for the Bloomington Schoolhouse, for, uh, for Blooming Mums, uh, for a whole bunch of different things. So you happen to be here on the Sunday when we're all going to make our commitments for the next three years to the capital campaign. So we ask you to uh, fasten your safety belts and... Uh, Uh, Enjoy the ride, because uh, the rest of us, this is a day of great joy, and so we have one worship service today. Now, I'd like us today for our final uh, sermon on money, and boy, it has been good to preach on money, hasn't it, To, to hear sermons on money. 
Money has a way of getting at our uh, facile spiritual talk. You know, our, what we say we believe. Money has a way of sort of making the rubber hit the road. And it does really cause us to examine our hearts. Um, and Jesus talked about money constantly. And so um, it's been very, very good to have this scrutiny of our commitments and our idolatry. Don't ever forget that when the New Testament talks about idolatry, the principal thing it says is greed is idolatry. And uh, so anyhow, let's read our scripture. Um, it's found in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 38. And you might wonder why I have chosen to start and end, although I don't know that I told them. Yeah, I did. Okay. Um, Mark 12, verse 38 to chapter 13, verse 2. This is the word of God and is eternally true. Why don't you stand, please, as we read. Now, this is speaking of Jesus, and it says, In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So this week, instead of a parable, we're reading and meditating on one of the tiny little episodes of Jesus' life. And this is a good place for us to end our stewardship campaign. And so here's a little incident in Christ's life. It's small in the space it takes up, and it's small in the people that it looks at. But it's very large in the view of eternity in the judgment seat of our holy God. Now, it's a very common mistake in the church today to look at the amount of a gift and to judge a man by the size of his gift. Americans like, now I should say we love to do the numbers, don't we? And evangelical Christians are as much in bondage to numbers as Wall Street. Tim Keller runs his thousand. I always love that word, runs. You know, it's like cattle. I never heard a farmer who was a dairy farmer talking about how many he ran. You know, he, he looked at every single ear, the number, and that was this cow and this cow. But today in the church, we refer to how many we run. How many are you running on Sunday morning? You know, it's like you have a whip, you're cracking it, and everybody's running from you. Um, Tim Keller runs his thousands. Are you ready for this? But Mark Driscoll, his ten thousands. And yet Tim Keller has made it to the New York Times bestseller list, and so that gives him a leg up on his younger competitor. And so it also went between King David, or King Saul and David, and so it also goes among God's servants today. What's your attendance, and how many are you running, and what's your budget? 
is the talk among pastors attending presbytery meetings and conferences. Like all good Americans, followers of Jesus Christ today are in bondage to numbers. We judge one another based on where we got our degrees and how high the school is ranked for our particular major. We judge one another based on how many children or grandchildren she has, what his church budget is, how many this or that super apostle runs Sunday mornings or Tuesday nights at the fold, what the guy's GPA is, and so on. All of these exchanges of information and cataloging of one another is the way we establish our pecking order. And so all of us do the numbers. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man what? Say it out loud. And God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God does not look at money the way we look at money. In God's eyes, and certainly in God's church, what? The bottom line is not the important line. Now, I want to say that this morning for obvious reasons. Um, Honestly, by faith, I can say I don't give a rip what we raised this morning. Because I am confident that the capital of this church is not the money, but the children. And so the children aren't going to die if we have a commitment of $50,000 this morning. The children will just keep coming. Why? Because we have a church that's filled with women who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so consequently, their goal is to be fruitful. Now that sounds as contrarian as you could sound in today's world. But we all know that's our spiritual capital. Our spiritual capital is children. And of course, in all prior periods of church history, that was the principal capital. Nobody ever thought any different way. Nobody was capable of thinking differently about that. And if you read the way Scripture deals with the issue of children, you see that all through Scripture, that was universally affirmed by all God's people, Old Testament, New Testament. Everybody knew that fruitfulness in a home was its highest glory, its highest dignity. You will live, what? To see your children's children. (laughs) Really? Not me. I'm going to be in the casino chained to the slot machine. I'm going to be spending my children's inheritance. And then you see the interface between America today and the people of God. America today thinks that it should spend all its money before it dies and should go in a nursing home and should spend all its money before it goes in a nursing home so that it doesn't have to pay for the nursing home. You hire an attorney, you figure out a way you can spend all your money before you go in the nursing home so that then the nursing home comes from your taxes and then your children won't visit you and then it's just such a wonderful day we live in. And then the people of God are what? The people of God are having children And then those children are having children. And what is their wealth as they approach death? Their wealth is their children, their grandchildren. And now my mother-in-law, God bless that woman's heart. I always say to those of you from China who join us here, that my mother-in-law, are you ready for this? Fasten your safety belt. She had 10 children. Then she had 27 grandchildren. My tailor is her youngest of 27 grandchildren. So far, she has, what would you say it's at now? I'm going to say 57 great-grandchildren. She's 95, and when we get together for our family reunion every summer, we put up a tent. And these are just her direct descendants, and we hire a caterer. You know, there can be more than a hundred people there. And that is called fruitfulness. And it's just like apple trees. 
And when it's apple trees, none of us have a fit. They say in Michigan this year that it's the largest apple crop they've had for years. And, and everybody in the state, especially people in Detroit, are saying to themselves, what are we going to do? Because Detroit knows that what you want is to shrink. And so... This morning, as we look at the issue of money, I don't mind if our commitments are way below what we were praying that God would give. That's fine. Because our wealth in this church is fruitfulness. And those who receive the greatest glory in this church are what? Mothers. And those of you who are visitors, this is the truth in this church. We don't pay lip service to our mothers. They run our elders' meetings. That's a joke. (laughs) But the truth is, I don't think any of us in the elders' board would make a decision without having a pretty clear idea, if it was a controversial issue, what the counsel of our wife would be. And every elder here would agree to that. And so here we come to Jesus speaking on money, And what we see is that Jesus flips everything upside down, doesn't he? It's the exact opposite of the IU Foundation. What is the prettiest building on the campus of IU? I was driving Robert and Zach past it on the bypass, and I pointed to it and I said, it's the nicest building. Far and away, the prettiest building of IU is the place where they do what? Well, it's the place where they bring the rich people to sign the checks. Dear friend of mine, Mark Craner, used to work at the IU Foundation when I first came to Bloomington, and he told me that his job was to be a a friend to old women and to act as if he cared about them. He wasn't complimenting his job. And so you think that that is how the world deals with money. The world pays closest attention to the one who gives the most, but what does Jesus do? Jesus pays the closest attention to one and to a widow. And the rich people, what does he do? The rich people, he just puts in a conglomerate. There's no particular rich man that even shows up. Did you notice that in the text? Look at the text. The people were putting money in, and many rich people were putting in large sums. Then flip it, please. A poor widow. You see that? The many and the one. Now, that's beautiful, isn't it? That flips this world upside down, doesn't it? That's as if the people in the box seats were put behind the toilets underneath the grandstand. And all the people who were working at the concessions and couldn't watch the game are all of a sudden up in the box seats. Right? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, let's think a bit about this word looks. Do you notice that it says, if you'd go back up again, please. Do you notice that it says he sat down opposite treasure and began observing? He began looking how the people were putting money into the treasury and then flip it. Poor widow, calling his disciples to him, he said to them, True, I say to you, this poor widow... You have to picture him looking. You have to picture him observing, okay? He is calling attention to what everybody can see. And so the habit then was that everybody would be able to watch how much people put in. Because with the widow, he says two copper coins. Now that goes totally against all of our thinking about money in the church, doesn't it? You know, when Bill Gates gives money to one more population control sterility campaign with his wife Melinda, what? All of the world announces it in the newspapers, on the television station. I mean, it's everywhere, right? And in the church, we go spiritual on them. 
And we say, well, the world does that, and we should never do that in the church. This should be a private matter, right? But why should it be private in the church? Well, you know why. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? But you know, he says the same thing about prayer. Have you ever noticed that? He also says you should pray in your closet, right? And yet, hypocrites that we were, we all just got on our knees and made a big show of praying publicly, didn't we? Did anybody see you? If so, you lost your reward. In other words, my point is that the exact same warnings that Jesus gives against showing yourself praying, he gives against giving and letting people see what you give. But we absolutize the one about giving, and we just willy-nilly cast off the one about prayer. Now, undoubtedly, that's because we're so godly in our giving, and we're so sinful in our praying, right? Well, no, not at all. The reason that we do this is that we're idolatrous, that we're greedy. And so we don't want anybody to know what we give because we don't honor God with our wealth. That's why in America today it's such a private thing because private things are those things that you don't want your wife to see on your computer because they're sin. Right? And so today in the church, boy, we regularly tell people that when you join this church, we have a couple men that look through your giving all the time and that if you establish over a period of years of not tithing, not giving to Lord, something approximating what would honor him as we judge it. And you say, what gives you the right to judge? And I say, we don't have any rights to judge. Well, you just said you judge. I say, yes, we have a responsibility to judge. No right. Do you think anybody gets a kick out of looking at what you give? I am the senior pastor. Okay? And one of the perquisites of being the senior pastor is I don't ever have to know what you give. And I'm happy. <laughs> Except when pastors or elders or deacons don't give what they should give. And then that's my peculiar responsibility is to deal with our officers when they're not faithful with their money. And so in this church, one of the privileges that you have is that when you sin with your money, we are committed to coming to you and talking to you about your sin. Financially. Now, if I were to say to you that another commitment of ours is if your husband is out on the road traveling and we find out he's committing adultery when he's out on the road, that one of his privileges is that the elders will discipline him for his sin. All the women here would go, yeah, yeah. Everybody here is for that, right? Everybody's like, good job, good job, right? And so why when it comes to money, when I tell you that our elders will deal with your husband if he's not faithful financially, do we all go, well, that's not very good. That can't be right. And I say, nope, it's absolutely right. And if I were to ask people to raise their hands here, who have had the elders come to him and talk to them about their money. Uh, you'd be surprised how many hands would go up here. Jesus says, look at what everybody's giving. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, look. And then he called attention to the rich people, and how did you know then? Well, a nice thing about checks is checks don't get thicker the higher the amount is, you know? But back then, there, there, it, it was not a symbolic thing, you know? The, it wasn't the federal government cheapening the currency, right? It, it wasn't trimmed. It was either this amount or this amount or this amount of a precious metal, and it was either gold or silver or copper, right? And so some of the people had bags that were big and they just poured money in and you could just watch how much money they were giving. And then there was a widow who came and put in two small copper coins. And Jesus said, what about the widow? He said that she gave more than all the rich people, right? 
because they gave out of their what? Now, I know that there's nobody in this church that thinks they have a surplus. And if there's some stupid man who thinks he has a a surplus, his wife will correct him immediately. Right? How many of you think you have a surplus? Now, everybody's going to raise their hand. Yeah, yeah. Of course. (laughs) Yes. And that's why we love you. Listen, you guys, I'm sorry, but we know each other here. You may not. But did you see who raised her hand? It was our widow. Now, she's horrified that I'm calling attention. Can you imagine how horrified that widow was in the temple when Jesus called attention to her? Remember Rita Cuffey? Boy, you called attention to Rita, our widow, and she was like a scared deer. And that's how Rachel's feeling now. But Rachel, thank you. Thank you. I say, who here has a surplus? And Rachel, up front, she just immediately puts her hand up. And that's precisely what Jesus was talking about. Now, let me contrast that negatively because Jesus is always saying both the no and the yes. The no and the yes. The no and the yes. Jesus is not just soliciting uh, uh, random acts of kindness. (laughs) Jesus is warning and promising judgment also. You all with me on this? And so what's the negative illustration I have? Well, here's my negative illustration. And you'll know how much you have to avoid the men who parade in long flowing garments and make big show of their long prayers and devour widows' homes. You'll know how much you need to avoid the pastors, elders, and seminary professors of evangelicalism today. You'll you'll know how much you have to avoid the men making a lot of money off books today published by evangelical. All the men that Jesus said beware of at the beginning of this text, remember that? Beware of, and he says that their judgment will be greater. And you always make the translation in your mind as you read scripture to today, always. You're always looking to see, well, where do I stand And who is this, and who is this, and what should I watch out for, right? That's how we approach Scripture. We're always asking, what is God saying to me from the Word of God here? And so you have to apply it. You have to come up with parallels today. So this last week, my wife was um, sitting next to me on the couch, and she said this to me. Well, I don't know what she said to me, actually. All I know is as she said it, she cried. Now, what do you think my wife was crying about? My wife was crying about a man who had grown up in the same place we grew up in Wheaton, who for years had been the editor of Moody Press, had a close relationship with my dad. Uh, They were both in the editing and publishing and writing business. And uh, she had just read an item in World Magazine about him. Now, this is probably the most famous author in evangelicalism in the last 20 years. All right? And here it is. His name is Jerry Jenkins. And here's what we read in World Magazine about Jerry Jenkins. Recently, Jerry Jenkins underlined what Jesus here said about what? about the surplus. Are you with me? In an article in World on the gambling that he and Chicago megachurch pastor James McDonald of Harvest do with each other. Did you all hear that? In an article in World on the gambling that Jerry Jenkins and James McDonald of Harvest do with each other in casinos, Jenkins, quote, Now, here's from the article. Jenkins said he is, as he says it, quote, a high-income person and has enjoyed, quote, a pretty flush group of years with the Left Behind series. Okay? He says, quote, you can do the math. I've sold 70 million books. 
So to break even making 8,000 playing poker, it's kind of pocket change to me, unquote. And Mary Lee sat there and tears streamed down her eyes. Why? That's evangelicalism today. If a guy can run 5,000 in his church, he's king of the hill. He's the biggest, baddest chicken in the chicken coop. And then what happens? Well, money corrupts. Remember, Jesus warned against what? Against the deceitfulness of wealth. And so Jerry Jenkins just defends his behavior, and James McDonald's elders are uncomfortable with it, and so he says, okay, I won't do it anymore. But what you want to ask is how on earth did they get to the point where they were doing it? And the truth is, rich people do have surplus, don't they? After all, all Jerry Jenkins is saying is what we all know. Rich people have surplus. And that's what Jesus says. He says about the rich people, they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. A number of years ago, I was looking at a magazine, and I saw an ad. And the ad was a picture of a golf cart out on the fairway on an incredible golf course on the cliffs overlooking the ocean. And then with her back to the camera was a woman dressed expensively who was about to hit the ball. And the whole scene reeked of wealth. The caption of the ad was, we can't tell you who banks at our bank, but we can tell you why. And of course, the point of the ad is that the people who have accounts at their bank are very wealthy. And of course, what is always true of very wealthy people except the nouveau riche? They're very private. I was saying to Robert that I remember when I was caring for Mrs. Spaulding's estate that one weekend he was going to cover for me, taking care of the houseboy jobs at this estate in Manchester by the sea. And after introducing uh, Mrs. Spaulding to Robert, um, she agreed that maybe she would allow him to come on her property, you know. And... uh, And so Robert was leaving, and I was going around the back to get to work. He'd, you know, he'd been vetted. He was okay. And as he walked down the sidewalk, he didn't remember this, but I remember it. As he walked down the sidewalk over to the, to the uh, um, carriage house where the parking area was, um, Mrs. Spalding was in front of the front door, and she called out imperiously, Oh, Robert! And Robert turned around and looked at her. Yes, Mrs. Spalding. We're very private here. And Robert was nonplussed. He didn't know what she was saying. You know? And then she repeated. Robert, very private. We, we are private here. And of course, she was saying what? Well, the lady in the ad is very wealthy and what? The camera doesn't even show her face. Why? She's old money, and old money wants its privacy. And the ad is intended to get you to move your money to that bank so that you can be in the exclusive club of people who have old money, in other words, it's generational money, and who are very private. As I remember, this was years ago, that you had to have, I forget how much constantly deposited to even be be considered for that bank. And you and I can understand a business acting in this way. What's the bank saying? The bank's saying what? What is the bank saying? Trust me, it has application to the text. The bank is saying, we are not interested in the widow's might. And this is constantly said by the church today. It's constantly said by the church today. In infinite numbers of ways, we as pastors, the elders, yes, the older women, and certainly Campus Crusade, say, 
we don't want the widow's might. And you say, well, why did you bring Campus Crusade into it? Wasn't it enough that you mentioned Jerry Jenkins? Okay, here's why I brought Campus Crusade into it. Campus Crusade is constantly bragging about their numbers. It's of the essence of Campus Crusade. And Campus Crusade constantly tells everybody we are the largest missions organization in the world. That's what everybody knows about Campus Crusade. So let's take them on their own basis. What they value, let's assume that it's what they value. Okay? And I remember back in about 19, I'm going to say 85, 83, 80, 78, somewhere between 1978 and 1985, I remember being at my in-law's house. My father-in-law was Ken Taylor, and he was friends with Bill Bright. And I remember he had sitting on the table and showed me personally a prospectus for a new capital campaign they were doing. And this prospectus was two feet tall by about a foot and a half wide. Now, you know that there's no natural format in America of printing that's that big, right? Except maybe the annual report of Apple. I don't know. But this thing had delusions of grandeur. It was huge. The weight of every single of the 20 to 30 pages, all right, the weight of every page was approximately the weight of Charlie Trotter, may he rest in peace, of his restaurant menu. Okay, in other words, an expensive restaurant that doesn't have something to stiffen it behind made of plastic. And you get handed the menu and you know that you're going to pay for that meal. Okay, every page was that thick. The printing and the graphics were gold upon gold upon gold. The lettering was huge, the calligraphy, the, I mean, everything about that thing said, this is a privilege that you have to even hold this document in your hands. So I'm holding it in my hands because I, I know a rich man. And so I'm holding it in my hands and I read it, you know? And I go through it word by word. And it's talking about how there's this round hall out in Arrowhead Springs, where their headquarters was at the time, and that they would put this hall together in such a way that those who gave uh, a quarter million would have their names put here, and those who gave half a million here, and those who gave a million here, and those who gave 10 million here. And everything in it was written in such a way as to let you know what your pecking order would be in that hall where they would put your name. Okay? And then, and then this. Then they said, this is not a campaign for the widow's might. you imagine and that's what the church is today that's the church you know there's an old saying he who builds to God and not to fame will never mark a building with his name. And that's us in the church today. We give the seats of honor to the rich people. And if you were born a Baptist, you just can't wait to become a Presbyterian. Because why? Well, because Presbyterians are higher on the pecking order. And everybody's keeping track of how many you're running Sunday morning and what your book sales and what your royalty sales are and 
If you go to conferences, what do they always tell you? They tell you how many this person is running and and when they started their church and how big it grew and how soon and how many books they've authored. and, And every pastor loves the positions of honor. And the pastors, Baptist pastors, mind you, today parade in robes. And they have colorful stoles. And it doesn't... And, oh, do we love our titles, don't we? Pastors today who have in their email address the letters D-R. And it's nauseating. And why is it nauseating? Well, it's nauseating for starters because it's a D-men. It's a trash degree. <laughs> Hello? And you say, oh, I can't believe he said that. I say, well, Charles Schaffel said it at Gordon-Conwell. <laughs> and you say, I don't know Charles Schaffel. I say he was a professor at Gordon-Conwell. And he said that the church today has been taken with an unbelievable, um, uh, an unbelievable fad of, and you know what he called it, demon possession. And Charles Schaffel was a godly man. And that's the church today. No pastor today wants to not have a doctorate. Do you all know this? Are you aware of it? I just saw a picture of a pastor today who is, has completely white hair. And so you go to his about page on the church, because I was asked for a recommendation by Jurgen for a church where a friend of his is going to study. And I, I don't know the guy, but he has white hair, And what it said about him is that he's working on his doctorate. And I just, it's inconceivable to me that, you know, you're my age and you're working on your doctorate. I mean, you know, I have trouble keeping up with my grandchildren, (laughs) with you, you know, but he's working on it. What on earth do you think getting involved in civilian affairs is if it isn't pursuing a doctorate when you're 60? and you're the pastor of a church. You remember Paul says that no, no soldier gets involved in civilian affairs, right? Do you, do you remember this? And so can we apply scripture and think? And Jesus says, beware. And then he points out that they have titles and they like to be addressed in the marketplaces with respect. What do you think doctor is? This is Bloomington. Doctor is a term of respect that every single Presbyterian pastor wants to have. And so no tall steeple church would ever consider you if you didn't have a doctorate. And the only thing that will get you into a tall steeple church if you don't have a doctorate is if you have a British accent. (laughs) And this this is the church today. Come on, guys, wake up, wake up. Smell the napalm in the morning. (laughs) And so Jesus says, beware. That's what Jesus says. And then he lists all the traits. And the traits are what? The traits are the robes, right? The traits are the seats of honor. The traits are being addressed in public in a respectful way. In public, right? Making long prayers for show, which means you don't pray in private. You only pray in public. And then what? Devouring widows' houses. And so look at this. 
The pastors and the elders and the seminary professors and the authors of the religious books are devouring widows' houses. And then, over here you have the widow. And what is she doing? Her heart is on pilgrimage from this world. Her heart belongs to God. Okay, and that's the text. Her heart belongs to God. And the rich people give, and their giving just cuts a little bit into the tea time at the golf course. And what they're going to leave is an inheritance to their children or to some college. And the widow, it's what she was going to eat that night. Did you remember that Jesus said what she lives on? She has no surplus and she still gets. Now, isn't that a wonderfully freeing thing for us to have this morning as we come to the capital campaign commitment? That God looks on the heart, that God sees the sacrifice, and that he honors us according to our sacrifice, right? (laughs) Isn't that sweet? And listen, every single one of you has the freedom in Christ to rejoice with God what Jesus rejoices with. We don't have to be in bondage to this world. We don't have to think the world's thoughts. We don't have to bow the knee to Baal, the Baal of money, the dollar. We don't have to be fearful about what we're going to eat or drink or what clothes we wear because the Bible tells us that God provides for for, for the grass in the field, for the flowers. He provides for the sparrow. And so, every single week when we come under the word of God, what does it do? Every single week, it flips us upside down. It exposes the wickedness of our own hearts, and then it says, come to Jesus and to believe. Now, imagine that you had been the disciples, and you had just gone through what I just preached, right? Jesus is like real specific. He says, take a look. You look, and he says, now, Bad there, good here. And over there are all the pastors and elders and seminary professors and, 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 and left behind authors. And over here are what? Over here are the simple, the poor, and the humble. And he, he's what? He's calling you to be over here, right? Right? Are we willing to be over here, Esther? Yes, absolutely we're willing to be over here. We all? Everybody? Okay, and don't you think that the disciples, when he was done teaching, now you know I'm going to snooker you, right? I'm just warning you. But don't you think when the disciples got done hearing that teaching, they were all on board, just like Esther. And they said, yep, yep, we're over here, right? Right? Okay, this is why I did what nobody else would ever do with this text. Put it back up, please, and go to verses down there. And so I include the first two verses of chapter 13. And here, as he was going out of the one of his disciples, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and what wonderful paintings by Michelangelo. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Did the disciples get it? And you say, well, we don't know that the two were right next to each other in time. I mean, there might have been a narrative break there or something like that. And I say to you, Mark doesn't give us a narrative break. These chapters and verses are put in post-inspiration. Why do you think that's the next thing that's there? The reason is we can't help ourselves. I think tomorrow I'm going to fill out an application to get a doctorate of ministry. (laughs) I'm not going to. And if I do, would you please slap me? But this is how weak we are. This is how weak we are. That immediately they point to the temple and they say, look at the temple. And Jesus says what? I spit on the temple. I mean, isn't that what he says? 
And listen, if you think buildings don't matter to America today, you just go up to my home church, College Church in Wheaton. Like I told you, they even have a tunnel going under the road. Oh, could I, could I be a pastor there? I, I didn't. I could stand behind that pulpit and feel like I was a man who really knew what he was talking about. Why? Because of the building. And you bet your booties that if, some, if Jesus came to that church, they would walk outside and turn around and say, what a glorious church. So why did Jesus say that? Jesus said that because God is a loving father and he disciplines those he loves. And he slapped them upside of the head. It was not out of frustration or anger. It was well-placed and intentional with perfect equanimity. And he said, no dog, down dog, down. They were like a dog that was jumping up on their master. And he said, no. When they tried to make him a king, what did he do? Every single time the disciples and the people that followed Jesus tried to flip the kingdom of God upside down so that the first were first and the last were last, Jesus said no. And if you don't think that this mattered, then you look at what Stephen said that got him killed. Do you remember what he said? The most insulting thing he could have said, which was what? God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. And what did they accuse Jesus of when he went in front of Pilate and Herod? They accused him of tearing the temple down. The Pharisees got the point, didn't they? Hmm? And so what we need to remember is that the memorials and the beautiful buildings and the Sistine Chapel with Michelangelo's paintings, right, are very dangerous. Our homes and our cars and our bank accounts are very dangerous. And so with that exhortation, I encourage you to show your trust in Jesus Christ as we come and make our commitments And by God's grace this morning, our commitments that go into this chest will be absolutely equal, just like the Marxists. Because everybody will sacrifice the same proportion. Right? You with me? Everybody will say, there will not be anybody this today that gives from their surplus. Right? Right? All right, David, are you going to... Wait, what am I supposed to do now? Oh, pray. Okay, let's pray. (laughs) Our Father, we thank you that your son Jesus Christ was a prophet as well as a priest and a king. We thank you that the secrets of our hearts are revealed by your word. And we thank you that money is not filthy when it is given to you. We pray this morning that our commitments will demonstrate that we are on pilgrimage and that our hearts are in heaven and therefore our treasure is there also. Father, help us in our weakness. Discipline us. Discipline us, Father, because we want to be your sons. And we pray that you will take and receive glory from what we do now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.